founders, leaders, you have to surround yourself with really good people. You cannot do it alone. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to world-class investors and Olympians, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, we're bringing back our popular VC feature series, and I'm joined by Eileen Burbage, MBE, founding partner at Passion Capital, the preeminent early stage tech VC firm based in London. Eileen is also a director at Fatifa, the UK and Europe's leading reproductive benefits provider. Eileen has been described by Fortune magazine as the queen of British VC, which is no surprise given her extensive experience and stellar track record, having backed some of the UK's most successful businesses, including Monzo, Go Cardless, Marshmallow, and many more. Outside of Passion and Fatifa, Eileen has also served as the UK's Treasurer's Special Envoy for FinTech for eight years, was Tech Ambassador for the Mayor of London's office, and she previously served on the UK government's Business Advisory Group. There is so much ground to cover with Eileen, so I am so honoured that she's joined us today on 40 Minute Mentor to dive deeper into her career story. So a huge welcome, Eileen. It's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on here. Oh, no, the pleasure is all mine. Well, we're going to warm you up, Eileen, as we always do with our guests, with some quick-fire questions. So if you don't mind, can you finish the following sentences after me? Number one, the deal I am most proud of is... Okay, first of all, I'm already killing this vibe because I know these are supposed to be rapid-fire, but I feel like I have to put a disclaimer. And if you don't like this qualifier, you can edit it out later. No, that's cool. But I think the rapid fire is really tough because all of these deserve context. But the the first one and the reason why I paused and had to do that. Yeah, the context on this one is I think there's lots of reasons people would expect me to say or won't be surprised to hear me say that the deal I'm most proud of is Monzo Bank. But I want to qualify that it's not just because of the sort of financial success that it's become or the value that it's started to already develop and that it has as an enterprise value. I've said from the beginning, I do know there will be Monzo knots. So people who work at Monzo or who did work there years and years ago, I had said as far back as 2016, 2017, 2018, long before it was worth, you know, anywhere near where it's worth now, that I was really proud to have backed that team because it's always lived and delivered value in line with its values. And that was something that I feel was a privilege to watch and be a part of in the early days, even before we necessarily knew that it was going to be, you know, an objective success as well. So sorry, not very rapid for a rapid fire answer. No, no, no. It's a great answer though. And having worked with some of the startups that come off the back of uh, ex-Monzo employees, you know, it's just an incredible success story and so many great entrepreneurs are coming off the back of it as well. And I'm also a happy customer. So thank you. (laughs) Um, I wish I would have invested in... Wise or what was then transfer wise. But there's another one too, probably on Fido at the time. Those are probably my two biggest sort of anti-portfolio companies. And WISE is a good one because we actually knew Christo and Tovit really early on. They actually started in our offices. So on some lists or by some accounts, we get get credit for investing in it. Actually, people still contact us in case we're willing to sell secondary, things like that. So 
in some lists or some databases, we are down as an investor because they started in our office and we knew the team so well and so early on. I had the pleasure of working with Talbot at Skype in the early days, but we did not make that investment. And we almost saw it too early or big lesson learned. We gave feedback on the model, which they ultimately ended up incorporating. We should have just backed the team anyway. Wow. Oh, interesting. I guess all investors have the ones that got away and those are two pretty big ones, but you've more than made up for it with uh, all the successes you've had. Question three, a myth I'd like to bust about VC is? There are so many. I think one of them is that anyone who is a VC is already independently wealthy. Another one would be that anyone in VC is necessarily clever, bright, good, high quality. Those are probably maybe the top two. Okay. Thank you for sharing. The hardest part of being in VC is? I really thought about this question a lot because I don't know that I'm willing to say anything is particularly hard in speech marks. I feel like it's a real, real privilege to be an investor of any variety, but a venture capital investor. I don't think anything is, again, in speech marks hard compared to you know what founders go through and other people that are involved in our day-to-day work. So I really don't think there's anything that's hard or difficult about being a VC. And I guess that also reflects that I think of it as a labor of love, like everything that I do with it, I really enjoy doing it. And I think one has to enjoy doing all of it. You know, I thought about what other people say in answer to this question. I've heard them say, you know, the hardest part is saying no. The hardest part is sifting through all of the deal flow. The hardest part might be fundraising from LPs. The hardest part is getting distributions. The hardest, part, you know, any of those things Again, I feel like those are very much first world problems and it's part of, again, the privilege of being an investor. So I really don't have an answer to that. I really like that answer because it shows how much you still love what you do. Given all the success you've had and the experience you've had, it's great that you still have that. It is still that labor of love. That's a really inspiring thing to share and hopefully gives me hope because I still love what I've been doing. I'm 11 years into JBM, but uh, you know, I certainly have lots of energy to keep going. Final quickfire question, Eileen. The one thing I'd like to change about VC is? Oh, there's lots of things I'd like to change. Certainly the number of unpleasant people, I'd say. Obviously not everybody, not all VCs, not everyone that I've worked with. But I do think it is a sector or it's a job title or it's an area that has so far been kind of self-selecting or even not self-selecting, but selecting of certain types of personalities and people of certain stature, accomplishment or achievement or certain backgrounds that don't really necessarily line up with being the most pleasant, likable, high integrity, nice to work with people. So put another way, I think there are a lot of jerks. We'll see that change. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think uh, in the scheme of things, it's been really interesting to see the different types of characters within it. And thankfully, we've been very lucky to work with lots of lovely people. But there are definitely there are some jerks, let's put it that way, like there are in a lot of industries. And hopefully that will change over time. And I guess we'll come on to talk a bit about diversity and inclusion later on in the conversation. But I think that's where uh, having a a broader cross section of society writing checks, I think could hopefully help some of that. Amazing. Well, Eileen, thank you. Already, you've shared some fascinating insights into how you think of things and your love for VC is clear, but we'd love to take you back in time now before we talk more about Passion Capital. And I'd love to learn a bit more about your upbringing and early career. So do you mind sharing a bit more about what a younger Eileen was like, what your upbringing was like, and uh, perhaps a, a little bit more about uh, the, your early career as an operator? 
And how did that shape you to be the person you are today? Yeah, of course. So probably I think of it as a quite a boring story, but you know, I was born and raised in the Midwestern part of the state. So in the suburbs of Chicago, which is largely Caucasian, white community, but as the daughter of first-generation immigrants, so both of my parents had come across to America separately to pursue higher education and then had my brother and myself. And so we lived in the Chicago area suburbs. So I was one of, you know, not very many East Asian people at my school or in the community. Certainly my parents, you know, had a community or friends of people that were Chinese, but it was sort of almost very separate to, I guess, day-to-day life and sort of where my parents worked and also where we went to school. I mentioned that or I spent so much time on that because I do think that shaped me a lot in that, you know, when we talk about, and you religiously will talk about later more, diversity, equity, inclusion, I obviously get asked a lot about sort of gender balance and gender inclusion. And for me, for so much of my life, until I was really an adult in the workplace, I only thought about sort of ethnic inclusion or ethnic diversity and sort of othering in speech marks in that I really thought it was a sort of a big challenge for me being non-Caucasian in a really sort of, you know, white dominated society. And I really thought there was no issues necessarily or no systemic challenges or certainly far fewer to being a girl while growing up than to being a Chinese girl. And so for me, I think a lot of what I've done sort of early on was to make sure that I could assert that I could speak English, that maybe I was good at other things other than maths. By the way, I'm not good at maths in my head, that I was, you know, not what the Asian stereotype was and that I was as good as maybe say a white colleague or a white contributor. So I was brought up in that way. And I guess very stereotypically, was told how important education was. And I still believe that, and of course, try to impart that upon my kids. So school was really important. I think I was, they used to use these terms, they don't use them now, but, you know, academically described as a high achiever. And so I would do well on standardized tests and with grades and marks. But it got to the point where once I got to uni, I completely wasn't really rebelling against it, but I decided to just not work as hard or felt like, oh, I could coast or continue to coast really because I don't know that I felt I worked necessarily that hard through high school or any part of schooling and did almost fail out of uni actually. So it was a good lesson learned. It was a sort of a reality check. And I feel really lucky because I got a computer science degree from the University of Illinois. But actually at the time that I was there, there were two computer science programs. One was in the math college and one was in the engineering college And I was in the engineering college, but had applied to general engineering, which was the time, probably one of the easier programs to get into. And then I transferred into computer science while there because I perceived that to be even easier than hardcore engineering. But coming out of university then with a computer science degree, I was working in sort of kind of engineering roles, but I went to a telecoms company first and it was probably most akin to say product management, where I did a little bit of coding, but then most of it was interpreting sort of technical requirements, either to sales and marketing people or vice versa, and then kind of transitioned into more market development, business development roles. And that telecoms company actually transferred me out on a rotational assignment to the San Francisco Bay Area, where I then just absolutely fell in love with the tech sector realizing that there was so much more to being in the tech sector than, say, just programming. 
and that you had obviously all these sort of cross-functional roles or these other functional roles that we now know about. And so then that's when I took a job at Apple as a market development manager, what they titled an evangelist at the time for what's the predecessor to the iPhone, but was the Newton personal digital assistant. This is Blackberry days. This is before the Palm Pilot. And so just stayed and fell in love with the tech sector from there. And so I was in the Bay Area for 10 years for all of the dot-com boom and a couple of years of the bust. But I think I learned more in the last couple of years when things weren't going so well or weren't just easy pickings for everybody than I did for most of the dot-com boom. And I did think I was going to stay in the Bay Area forever, just kind of rotating through marketing, business development, market development roles, or product management, and actually came to London in 2004 to work at Skype and thought that it would be really valuable for my CV for staying in the Bay Area just to knock up some international experience for what I thought would be a year or two. And so 20 years on, I'm still here in London, now a British citizen, so dual national and have given birth to four British citizens as well. And so I'm here now and really invested both literally and figuratively in the British ecosystem in Europe and in a lot of, I think, non-US opportunities really, because part of coming abroad in the first place was this thought process that Silicon Valley was probably a bit too insular and sort of maybe not thinking uh, globally enough or about opportunities that lied outside of the Bay Area or even the United States. Incredible. What an interesting uh, background. Thank you so much for sharing. I find it really interesting just the way you described, you know, being a bit different at school. It reminds me of something that my father told me when he moved. He was an immigrant from India. And one of the things he said was he was so different to everybody in his school that it really kind of spurred him on to make sure he spoke English quicker, that he was excelled academically in, in a sporting context. So that really resonated with the conversation I had with him. Well, as you mentioned, you came to the UK and thank you for coming to that sounded like that wasn't going to be a long-term move, but thank goodness you did, because look at all you've achieved. <laughs> you came and you were hired as Skype's first product person, which is, uh, you know, I'd imagine at the time, maybe you didn't realize how impactful that was going to be. But uh, I'd love to learn a bit more about what it was like to join Skype before it went on to become such an iconic brand. Were there any like massive learnings that you took from your time there? It'd be awesome to, to share that with our audience. Oh, gosh, there are so many learnings. But I also think there's learning in sort of everything that we do. Do you know what I mean? You can always take a lesson from any kind of experience. But yeah, of course, Skype was amazing. But so many things. I mean, even from, you know, you were just very generous there about how it worked out and how, yeah, maybe that wasn't anticipated. I mean, that wasn't anticipated at all. And one thing that was really interesting for me looking back on it now is because I had a short-term mentality, which is going to sound really ironic, but because I was thinking so short-term, i.e. I just was looking for a role for a year, maybe two at most. I wasn't actually necessarily fixated on, is this going to be a really sustainable company brand? Is this going to be a winner? Is this the end all be all? Will it define my career? Anything like that. And I actually took the leap just based on completely different criteria. Literally what was going to be most fulfilling, gratifying, or valuable for me for the next year or two seeing it as a stepping stone to candidly going back to the Bay Area is what I thought I was going to do. And so one thing that's interesting looking back at it now is I had, was really lucky actually, I got a job offer from not only Skype, but also Shazam, which at the time was a completely different company. This is three years before the iPhone. So it's before Shazam really pivoted. But on paper, I think, and actually venture capital investors would have said the same because Shazam had raised much more from VC at that point than Skype had done. And you would 
look at on paper Shazam being a quote unquote safer bet than Skype because it had a patent portfolio. It certainly didn't have company founders that were under indictment in the US. You know, it didn't have sort of the risk, I guess, that Skype did. And it seemed like it was going to be a much safer bet. And it also had teams that were based in the US as well as the UK. So, you know, you could travel back and forth and potentially use that to kind of rotate back around and all these things. But I ended up thinking about how amazing it would be for me, given where my experiences had been to date, getting exposure to a development team that was based in Estonia, getting exposure to, you know, a team that was being led by people who had done Kazaa before that, which had really fundamentally changed internet usage, broadband usage, how people were sharing content and things like that. And so it was also smaller. There were only five people in London at the time. And I just sort of thought, okay, for the next year or so, this is actually going to be much more interesting than Shazam, which is probably more sort of typical of what, I guess, other tech companies were at the time. Again, it was pre-iPhone, so I didn't anticipate, obviously, what Shazam would go through and its growth spurt following the iPhone and, and becoming a mobile app. But nonetheless, my criteria was fully different. So other lessons from Skype, other than, you know, thinking about what you want to get out of a particular experience and how you can personally benefit from working with people who will have unique experiences, because that's what I ended up indexing for, and that's what served me really well. You know, where that a big one that I'd like to impart even with companies that I work with today is you don't need to be a success in the U.S. to be a global success. And I think this is one that still is really hard and really tempting for people just to follow, I guess, the established path of moving to the U.S. or launching in the U.S. in order to try and establish uh, dominance. And Skype, I think, was a really great example of how you didn't need that. And it wasn't out of any kind of strategic you know, genius or even trying to prove that. Initially, it was just a function of reality and practicality, which is, you know, Nicholas and Giannis could not travel to the U.S., so it didn't make sense to have an office there. It didn't make sense to curry favor with U.S. consumers. It just made a lot of sense to focus on the opportunity outside of the U.S., clearly the home market here in the U.K. and all of Europe, and then actually to look further afield to Asia, which is really where I think Skype saw a lot of the hockey stick kind of traction initially. So that's one of the biggest lessons. Another lesson that was learned, which I think has been well proven now, or sort of at least better proven than that first lesson would be, you know, that remote teams can work. And so, or distributed workforces can work. So the development team was always based in Tallinn and the business or commercial teams were always based in London, but that worked really well for us. I think it requires an enormous sense of discipline. And I don't think it's for all teams or all personality types, but it worked really well for Skype. Another lesson was just to push as hard as, as possible and just to keep testing things and not to necessarily be worried about you know competition. So one of the things that I wrestled with when I took the role or thought about joining the company was because I was such a geek or in tech already, I was mindful that there was already voice over IP product offerings. So you could already do voice calling of a certain kind, AOL Messenger or an AIM or an MSN Messenger or an Yahoo Messenger in basically all the messaging apps. You could do voice calling, but it was terrible, right? The quality was awful. And Skype's first sort of tagline was that it just works and it wasn't working on the other platforms. So for someone like me that was thinking about it as a job opportunity, it was like, well, how's this going to be different? How's it going to be better? And clearly, if it could have been better, AOL would have done it, or Yahoo would have done it, or all these companies with massive resources, you know, Microsoft, MSN would have done it. But 
being able to be confident in one's own innovation, in the IP that they had had, in the learnings that they'd had from scaling, you know, and, and how they worked with nodes and how they worked with voice processing and what they had done with music sharing or music file sharing, you know, it's just don't worry about the competition. Don't look around you. Don't look behind you. Execute on your plan. Execute on your vision. And if something that does work, if it's something that there is value for consumers, it will end up becoming an enduring lasting proposition. Great. So many fascinating lessons there. Thank you, Eileen. You obviously reported, you reported to Nicholas uh, Zenstrom while you were there, who's obviously had a, you know, a stellar career, both at Skype and then uh, obviously as an investor. So what was that dynamic like? And, and what were your big learnings from working closely with him? Oh, I mean, I have mad respect for Nicholas, obviously. I have huge affection, right, for my whole time there. I really feel like it was the experience of a lifetime. So there's nothing that I would speak ill of or nothing that that I don't look back on with great, great fondness and just think that was so amazing. And I was so lucky to have every part of that experience. I think that one thing Nicholas did do extremely well was to hire. I guess it sounds like I'm flattering myself. Actually, I don't think I was one of those, but his technical team was second to none. And I think anyone who ever had anything to do with Skype would attest to that as well. So that technical team based in Talon was amazing. And I think the sort of founding CTO team was actually made of a team of four. And I had the, again, great privilege to continue working with them even after I left Skype because they set up a small private fund. And that's actually how I got into investing. But that founding team was just unbelievable. And kind of the most vocal of the four was, you know, a gentleman named Toivo, who is in effect the sort of CTO, and he was just phenomenal. So I've not had the chance to meet or work with anyone who's quite of his caliber since then. But Nicholas knew to defer to him, knew to give him reign, and knew that he would frankly be able to get it done. So a lot of what I think we did as a product team was mostly just act as a conduit between that development team and I guess the business and the commercial teams and the marketing teams and the requirements in London. But Nicholas was exceptional at working with or, or channeling and getting the best out of that development team with Toivo's help and Toivo's leadership. He was also really great at thinking strategically in terms of where things could go. I also had another lesson learned from Nicholas directly, which you know, and I've talked about this quite plainly, I don't have any qualms about this or any bitterness about this as well. But, you know, I was fired from Skype and I get that and I understand that. And that, of course, is Nicholas's prerogative as the founder and as the company CEO. And that is something I continue to impart on founders today as well when I work with them as an investor. If something's not working for you, for the team, for you as a leader, you've got to make that change. And I respect that. It's a great lesson for me. And it's something that I think all leaders probably wrestle with. I'm not suggesting that Nicholas necessarily wrestled with the decision for me. But, you know, the first time you do it, it feels like it's going to be so difficult that it's going to end up costing a lot of time or overhead or energy or, you know, it's just too difficult to do. But obviously, you've got to do what's right for the business and for you as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, you turning that into a, a, such an important lesson, which was, I'd imagine at the time, a very difficult moment is a great lesson for us all. And I think for me as a founder, it's, it's always been the hardest part of the job and the worst part of the job. But you sometimes realize if you, if you don't make those necessarily calls, it's much worse in the long run, isn't it? If you don't make the change. Actually, slightly alluded to my next question. So it's, a, it's a good segue uh, about how you ended up in VC in 2011. Do you mind sharing a bit more about why you decided VC was the right next 
next step for you at that point in your career? And a, a bit about how you found that transition from going from an operator to a VC. Yeah, sure. Although I don't know that I have too much advice for it because I think I got I just got really lucky. And I, again, I feel really, really privileged to be investing today or even have had the chance to do it back then. So the way it happened for me was, you know, I'd been obviously working at Skype. I left Skype after I was fired and then joined Yahoo here in London. I was then pregnant with my eldest and so was staying here in London with my then partner. And so I was working at Yahoo, but then on maternity leave in that sort of intervening period, the business obviously was sold to eBay. And I mentioned the four founding engineers, they had 5% of the company's equity when it was sold. So they had enough resource then or had enough from their sort of upside to set a private fund. It was 50 million euro and they wanted to start investing sort of more as organized angels, but you know, collectively as a group out of what they named ASI or Ambient Sound Investments out of Tallinn. And so when I was on maternity leave from Yahoo, initially it just started with them asking me if I could look over a business plan because, you know, we had worked so closely together at the time that I was at Skype and we had delivered so much and obviously collaborated on so much. So I had such a great working relationship and rapport and I think huge friendships with all of the talent team. So they some sort of asked me just as a friend, you know, you've been on the product side, you've been on biz dev, take a look at this. Could you take a look at this business plan and tell us, frankly, if you just think it's bullshit or if you think it makes sense and do you think that there's something here or not or it might have even been listen there's a founder that we think is working on something interesting but they're based somewhere and they might be traveling through London or they might be based in the UK but you know we're not going to necessarily ask them to fly out to Tallinn for us to meet them so could you take a meeting and tell us what you think about them having met them face to face so I was initially just sort of vetting business plan product roadmaps or even just uh, founder doing founder references for them. And we didn't even use the vocabulary or anything, but was effectively doing helping them with their due diligence. So I started doing that in the summer of 2006 and did that for about a year and a half. Actually, I carried on just supporting them while I was also working at Yahoo and just helping them make investments because it just seemed like a lot of fun to help people. You know, it's, you know, someone's thinking about investing in something and they say, what do you think? Does that make sense to you? And I was just offering my random, completely unqualified opinion. But, you know, in some cases they took it, in other cases they didn't. And then over that sort of two-year period, they ended up making four investments in London. And I would then carry on being sort of their board observer representative or, you know, their investor representative with those teams here in London. And it was a lot of fun. It was absolutely amazing. And even considered, wow, I'd love to do this on a full-time basis, but probably not (laughs) going to move to Tallinn and want to stay in London. Absolutely recognized, by the way, that I didn't think I was going to be able to get a job at a VC. So this is why I say I don't know that I have any good advice for anyone who would want to make that transition. I didn't have an MBA. I had a computer science degree. I don't know any macros still today in Excel. I'm not, you know, that kind of person or or just a, you know, investment type. I had only operational experience and an understanding for technical concepts. So I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten hired as an associate at Index or Balderton or Excel, which were, you know, the three big ones at the time and didn't want to move to Tallinn. But through the course of the four companies that they invested in in the UK and that I started working with, I met my then what eventually became my founding partners at Passion. And so we started working together really in 2009 in terms of thinking about fundraising and what we wanted to do. 
And then, uh, yeah, started investing out of Passion Capital Fund One in 2011. Wow, what a story. It Was there a original or existing um, or continuous investment thesis that you had? I know you're obviously an early stage investor. So I'd love to know why early stage and you know what you think makes a, a great early stage investor. So I think for me, early stage always made the most sense because I had had that experience at Skype and I knew what we went through when we were five people in London. And then I think at the time that I left, it was about 50. And then I think, you know, the talent team was, I don't know, between 10 and 15 when I joined and into the hundreds by the time that I left, you know, and I remember that I joined right after Skype had raised from Index, but then I left right before the sale to eBay. So I kind of been through that stage. And so it made the most sense for me to apply my experiences to helping other people that might want to go through that similar stage. I think the other reason for me, early stage makes sense is because of what I said, I'm not good at, right? So I'm not, again, the Excel kind of warrior. I don't look at profit margins and how to improve those over time. I'm not the one who's going to deep dive into cohort analysis necessarily. I'm the one who I think is more looking at how do you build the team? How do you establish culture? How do you get working dynamics in place? How do you set about establishing kind of a cadence and objectives and how do you try and execute on those in the early days. So for me, it's where I think I could lend the most experience and the best advice, but also kind of assess what may or may not work. And then I guess tying it all together, for me, early stage investing really is all about the people. I know everybody says that probably about every stage of investing, but I do think it's even more true or the most true at the earliest stages because there's nothing else to diligence, frankly, right? You don't have a business model to look at. You don't have three years of financials to look at. You don't have a profit margin to analyze. You don't have inventory, you don't have stock, you don't have an IP portfolio. You just have these people who are telling you, this is what I want to do. This is the reason I want to do it. And this is why I think I'll be able to pull it off. And that's all you really have to go by. Whereas for later stage investing, you could look at a lot of other things. And if there's a model that's already working, you could even potentially, you know, bring in new talents or swap out talents and even optimize it further. So for me, it is about early stage investing. It's what I enjoy doing. And it's always been about the people and people are what resonates with me most. And we are very similar. And that's why I'm a headhunter and I love people and I love the people aspect. And that's uh, it's probably another reason why we really enjoy working with investors. I think it's a really unique vantage point you have. And clearly, uh, based on Passion Capital's success, you've made over 100 tech investments, backed billion dollar companies like Monzo, Marshmallow, etc. You're very good at picking winners when it comes to the right leaders and people. So I'd love to talk a bit, bit about talent in a minute. But um, there are going to be founders listening to this that will want to raise from you know funds like passion capital so can you share what you look for when you're assessing those early stage founders and their businesses what is it that kind of really draws you in and on the flip side what are the red flags that would put you off easier to start with the red flags so i think that for us i don't know it's going to sound obvious but we've long sort of considered that in order to really really build a successful business and one that's going to have massive enterprise value that is eventually, you know, at some point in time, going to be a really big team. It's going to be one that has a lot of customers, whether they're consumers or other businesses, and they're ones that are going to have lots of stakeholders. So other investors, distribution partners, channel partners, or the like. And so for all of those relationships or those touch points, the leaders of the business, for us, the thing that we 
indexed the most on is integrity and their ability to basically be compelling to other people. And so I really put that as a combination of things because one can be really, really compelling, but can also just be a con artist, right? I mean, that's what the best con artists are. They're really compelling, really engaging, and they get people to really, really go for what they're pitching. But for us, it's a mix of that with integrity as well. And so wanting to build something that's sustainable, long-lasting, and of value to people. So it's also got to be somebody that we feel, and we could be wrong, and there's really no good measure for this. I don't have an an optimal or an objective test for this or criteria for this, but we had to always feel like we could trust them. That doesn't mean that we had to trust them to want to do maybe the things that we would want them to do or to have the same judgment as us, but meaning that we trusted what they were telling us. So they could vehemently disagree with us and say, well, no, actually I'm going this way, or I just think that's not true. And I'm going to apply this thesis and I'm going to try this instead. But then to explain their rationale, their thinking, the thought process, and to tell us that honestly, we needed to be able to trust that thought process and their communications. So those are probably the most important pieces. And then everything else kind of comes from that. So the ability to be really self-aware, recognize what their strengths were, but then also where the gaps were so that where they need to fill in with other members of the team or eventual hires, if not co-founders, the ability to communicate again, or at least just to have a way to communicate. Not everyone communicates in the same way. Some are really great in person, really charismatic, you know, magnetic personalities. They're like, some are really great at written form communication. Some are really great with their design, the UX. You just see it in the, the app or the product. But whatever way or shape form it takes, they've got to be strong communicators. And yeah, everything else just flows from there, really. Love it. Thank you so much for the advice. I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people scribbling down notes there for, <laughs> for when they next uh, pitch the passion. Throughout your time as an investor, you've done something that I've seen not many other VCs do, which is step into interim CEO roles in some of your portfolio, the likes of Monzo, Tide, and, and most recently Fertifa, which is, is an incredible business. It is quite a rare thing to do. So do you mind just sharing a bit about like why you've taken those interim roles when you did? And perhaps just a little bit, it's a good opportunity to talk a bit about Fatifa and why you were sort of so keen to make that move at the time you did. Each of those are, are really kind of, there's specific circumstances for all of them. And it was never anything actually that we thought would happen. It's not as if we set up shop as an investor and thought, oh, we're going to be a hybrid with a studio model, or we might be hands-on, or we might actually take operational roles. So it was never actually planned. And you know, as you said, we started investing out of Passion Capital Fund One in 2011. My first time doing this was actually at Tide in 2018. So it was, you know, some years into the the journey, really. And I should also qualify that I wasn't interim CEO at uh, Monzo, but I do appreciate yeah the nod to the interim time that I did do there. So each of them had their own circumstances. With Tide, it was a again, it was really interesting. It, we had agreed with the company founder that the business was doing so well, it was just before the Series B, that it might be the right time to bring in a scaling CEO. And this is something that happens, I think, often with a lot of tech startups. It is a very different sort of skill set and I think set of characteristics and traits of somebody starting a business and then somebody taking it through to another kind of step change. And we've gotten there with Tide and you know all the investors were really bullish about promise that has played out. And the founder was brilliant, but we just sort of thought, listen, might be time to bring in somebody who is really well-equipped or has been through the experience 
of scaling something to take this to the next level. And so we've done that. We ran a search with a search uh, firm, not yourself, sorry, but with peers in your sector. And we had actually then agreed that package and announced it to the company, had an all hands did that whole, you know, where the founder did a great talk about handing over the reins and this was the right time and they were going to stay on the board. And, you know, it was just a, a good transition. And then unfortunately, the week subsequent to that, the candidate actually changed their mind and ended up deciding to go do something else, which was obviously great for them, but a huge nightmare for us. And it was a sort of a harsh kind of a, a brutal kind of change, which is okay, wait, do we now tell the company, which is almost 50 people at this time, just kidding, you know, hold that thought, or actually the founder's not leaving just yet. We're going to wait three more months until we find someone else. Or it just felt like that was maybe not the best route given what we'd already done to start implementing the transition. And so the thought process was then instead of taking a step back, let's keep moving forward, even if we have to go sort of slightly sideways before we can actually take that leap up that we wanted to. And so it was decided that we'd still have the outgoing founder CEO, you know, step out of the CEO role as had been announced, but that somebody would come in as interim while we redid a search for a new CEO. And so that's what I decided to do, or I said, you know, I'd be happy to do that. So I'd been spending so much time with the founder, you know, during the transition and leading up to it. And so it felt like, okay, I can do this. I'm not going to probably implement any drastic strategic changes or anything like that. But there are some maybe talent issues to resolve, maybe some ongoing performance things that you know need to be taken care of, maybe some looking at the costs and, and things like that, just to maybe just make sure that things were in a nice place for when we did find the right person. And the idea was 99.9% of my time was going to be on the search for the incoming CEO. Obviously, plays out and there's obviously more work to be done as anyone who's been a CEO knows or a company founder. So I didn't mean to trivialize that, but it was, um, yeah, so that was the idea. And it took four months to bring in Oliver Pearl, who's been by all measures, a great CEO and taken the company to where we all hoped it could be taken to, if not uh, further to go. And so that's how that happened. And then in 2020 with Monza, it was a completely different setup, really. And Tom Bloomfield has spoken about this uh, quite openly. So I don't think I'm being disloyal or stealing his thunder or saying anything that he'd be uncomfortable with me saying. But for at least a year before he ended up, you know, before he ultimately left Monzo, he had been saying he was ready to go. And I think a lot of lessons that I've learned from that whole process, because I think we kind of failed him as a board and as, you know, advisors or as supporters by not recognizing that sooner, or at least from a governance point of view by not putting in a really concrete or reliable succession plan in place before he had sort of raised his hand and said, listen, I'm ready to go. So I remember him first saying it to me in about summer, August of 2019. I remember him taking a three-week Christmas holiday at the end of that year. But I also remember talking to him then that Sunday before everyone goes back to work, whether it was the 3rd or the 4th or the 5th of January, whatever, and saying, you know, how are you feeling? And are you feeling better about things or slightly more invigorated? And he said bluntly and very candidly, no, I am not. I haven't been on sleep the last few nights because I'm dreading going back and I'm just not in the right headspace for this. You know, obviously Monzo at this point had become a regulated bank. It had millions of customers. It had millions in deposits. It was a very different type of business than the one that he helped to co-found in 2015. And so my first involvement in Monzo was just actually to give him a bit of cover, if it will, or just to have his back. 
And I think he wouldn't mind me paraphrasing it this way. He got to the point where he said, listen, I just don't want to deal with the people shit and the regulatory shit anymore. And I just want to focus on product and vision and, you know, delighting our customers. And so I decided I'd go in and we talked about me being involved maybe three days a week to give him some cover on the people stuff, on the people side, you know, constant demands for headcount, constant requests on budget, constant clients are kind of conflicts about resourcing, things like that. And that I would maybe help with that. And also building up a bit of the C-suite around him, if not a direct succession plan. And that actually at the same time, our chair, Gary Hoffman, stepped in for a few more, I think, days a week as well to help on the regulatory sort of um, side. So that was the plan. And then what happened was, I don't know if it was three weeks or five weeks later, I kind of forget now, but then we had the pandemic and I guess talks of first lockdown because of COVID. That's what really changed it. And what started as sort of a three day a week, oh, I'm going to have Tom's back here and we'll look for a way for him to transition out over the next sort of three to six months became a sort of all out, you know, all hands on deck, full time or even more than full time gig where it lasted 10 months in the end. I did help with a lot of the people stuff, but unfortunately that ended up being things like closing down the service center in Las Vegas, implementing a redundancy program, you know, talking about salary sacrifice. And, you know, we ultimately ended up taking out 25% of the cost out of the business almost right away or in, you know, three to six months time. We also did get a succession planning in place for Tom. And obviously he left the business towards the middle of the year, but not only did we then bring in TS as the CEO, we also brought in Sujata as the COO. We brought in James as the CFO. Subsequent to that, we brought in, you know, Mike Hudak as the chief product officer. We brought in new general counsel and staff, new chief risk officer, Ian. So basically the entire C-suite in 2020 is overhauled. So big job. (laughs) No, it it was the work of many, but I think that one... That's sort of, it's an interesting thing if I look back on it now, because I don't know if we hadn't already agreed that I might do a few days a week to support Tom, if I would have jumped in to help as much as I'd done, you know, when COVID hit. I'd like to think that I would have done, but it certainly made it a lot easier, just the more natural thing, because I was already kind of being held to account and sort of attending his kind of weekly stand-ups or even daily stand-ups is C-suite and the like. But this one was more about like, I guess what every other business leader had to do in 2020, which is just, you know, react to COVID and a global pandemic. And then for us at Passion, it was an obvious thing because of the portfolio value that Monzo represented to us, right? So it was what was going to be a potentially existential time for Monzo was then very naturally, potentially an existential, not existential for the fund, but was going to be really material to the fund, uh, the fund's position and the fund's success ultimately. And then when Fertifa uh, happened, and it's a, it's a deal that I co-led with my passion partner, Mullen, during lockdown in October 2020, we both passionately support reproductive health and believe that it's been classically underinvested. In. Really, we're looking for something to do in the UK. And I had been an angel investor in a US company called Maven Clinic before. So I really believed in the Fertifa proposition. We had happily backed it in October 2020. It was doing actually really well. So this is maybe closer to a tide-like situation than a Monzo, but even not even close. Still, you know, 10-person team in 2021 and one that wasn't quite gelling internally, but doing really well commercially. So I had signed up the likes of Centrica, NatWest, and Meta as clients. And so for us as investors, we thought, gosh, they've signed up fantastic logos. They're doing what would be usually described as the impossible, but they're just having a bit of difficulty like 
getting going, building a culture, establishing sort of a, a well-functioning team, but it's only seven, 10 people at this point in time, I will go in is what I thought I'd do and just bring in a CEO like I had done at Tide, but it should be you know, much easier because it's a smaller team at an earlier stage. And I'll just look for somebody who wants to be a startup founder, but maybe doesn't have their perfect idea yet. So that was the plan. And actually coming off the back of Monzo, which took me some months, frankly, to recover from the burnout, I thought we'd do a walk in the park, right? Because it's nothing of the scope or the scale of a Monzo. But so I did do that. I came in January, 2022. I spent the first five weeks actually interviewing more than 50, five zero candidates for people that I thought could make great CEOs for Fatifa. At the same time, I obviously also wanted to continue hiring, wanted to help the team gel, work through some of the people or the cultural issues or some of the ways of working. And so clearly got emotionally invested with the people and the team and also the proposition and the patients we were supporting and people having Fertifa babies and all of that. And basically just felt even more in love with the company, the proposition, the opportunity and what we're doing. And so I don't know which comes first or you know if one feeds the other, but I couldn't quite get the ideal candidate to come in. Part of this was not just because I made it an impossible task or just sort of self-serving for me, but it's fine to say, oh, I'll just look for somebody who wants to be a startup founder, but hasn't come up with their perfect idea. But it's something else to have a situation where I have a certain amount of options to lend from an option pool to somebody to take on basically you know, that much risk as being a startup founder, but a fraction of the equity they would have if they were a startup founder. So that's where I had a bit of a mismatch. And the type of people I was looking for would obviously want and also be able to command the kind of equity that they deserved if they did start their own business. And yet I was trying to probably appeal to them with you know a fraction of that. So that's why I wasn't able to find the person, I think, the ideal person at least, or the caliber that I wanted. And at the same time, I was falling more and more in love with it, sort of thinking, okay, somehow I am sort of making more time to focus on this along with everything else that I'm doing. So what happens if I kind of try to keep doing it myself. And then here I am now two full years later, but I do still love it. It's another labor of love. It's something, it's true that you do make time for the things that you love to do. I'm really proud of everything that Fatiba has been able to achieve as a team and a company in the last two years. I'm really lucky the team was accepting of me, even with all of the other things that I also do in addition, like with passion and everything else that I still do. And I'm also really fortunate that, you know, we got really supportive investors to also buy into that as well. And so, you know, we we closed a seed round in May last year. And, you know, I'm really excited because we've got some of the best backers you could ever hope for. Incredible. So interesting to hear the context of those different moves and 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 just how passionate you are about Fatifa. It sounds like an amazing business. So thank you for the context, Eileen. Before we wrap up the interview, Eileen, I could talk to you for hours. So, but I'm going to distill my last two questions. There are going to be founders listening that are going to need to make executive hires. It is a hard thing to do, and you have been involved in many of these processes. So, have you got any just a little bits of advice for anyone that may be making their first leadership hire about how they? can nail that process any tips or tricks or learnings for them no that's so disappointing isn't it because i wish i could say yes but other founders will tell you that i still survey people and ask them what tips and advice they have i shared some time in an airport lounge with christo from wise a few months ago and i think he thought i was trying to set him up or i don't know what he thought i was doing but he thought it was being really really weird because i asked him how he does this and anything that he's learned from it so i don't have a good answer for this but what i can say is you have to do it. So even though there is no 
recipe book. There's no playbook. There's no obvious way to do it. There's no way to know if you're making the right call or not. You have to do it. Founders, leaders, you have to surround yourself with really good people. You cannot do it alone. And actually, it'll be a shortcoming if you believe that you can or you decide that you want to do that. So it is a show of leadership to trust in other people, to show that you can collaborate with other people, that you can delegate to them, that you can channel, that you can develop them, that you can take out their strengths and their weaknesses, and then also supplement people around them as well. The only advice I would give is you're going to spend a lot of time with this person. You're going to want to trust them with decisions that you can't or don't have time to take. You need to live with that. So make sure that that's a person that you feel that you can do that with. Don't just bring them in because their CV looks great, because they were just at your largest competitor, because they were, you know, whatever you think, because your VC recommended it. It's got to be someone that you're going to feel happy to be beholden to, to a certain degree. The other thing I would say is, with equity. On the one hand, don't be too stingy because as we all know, creating a bigger pie together makes more sense than trying to be stingy on, you know, like percentages of a percentage point. On the other hand, the other thing I would say, especially with executive hires is you can always add to an equity grant if it's working out really well. So that's one way to think about compensation maybe is to break up or to actually think about how you stage the overall equity, because obviously a new executive coming in says, you know, listen, when we get to an exit, I want to own, you know, I want to have this much of the business at that time. That's great. Then think of a plan of how you work up towards that versus maybe offering that in a package that bets from day one. Great advice. Thank you, Eileen. And before I wrap up questions, I've got to ask about DE&I. It's a topic we're both passionate about. And there has been advancements, but I think we'd all agree that there's still so much work to be done. So just to maybe if we could sharpen the minds of any investors or founders listening, what do we need to focus on to make some more improvement in the year and years ahead? I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is stop saying that we try to get deal flow and it's not in the deal flow, I guess, or that we're just not seeing entrepreneurs or those more diverse entrepreneurs aren't coming to us. I think we need more people on a wholesale basis to recognize we need to change the way we source our deal flow and the sources for that. And it's incumbent on us as investors to do that. The other thing we need to do is really just take a hard look at ourselves and the actions and the behaviors that we do and to see how that might be projecting onto the types of people we want to attract if we genuinely want to attract more diverse people. I won't name names, but there's a really well-known fund who just concluded an internal investigation about some inappropriate behavior, and they've decided that there was nothing conclusive to prevent the original partner from coming back. Is that going to scream out to people that they are an inclusive place, that they recognize what people value if they come from diverse pathways? I would say no. And so I think as an industry, I think we've really got to walk the walk. 100%. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you for saying that. We're sadly at an end. We've got three wrap-up questions for you. So at the start, we're recording this at the start of the new year. Great time for candidates to be reflecting about the future and their plans. So what is the best piece of career advice that you can pass on to our listeners? Gosh, I don't know. Again, I don't think I have great advice because I think I've been really lucky. I think I've been really fortunate and I still ask others for advice. But I do think even just speaking to you, I've realized that a lot of what I've described, whether it was when I took operational roles, whether it was when I moved to London in the first place, not to try and answer the question of what if sort of X years out, you know, not to try and answer what it looks like 20 years, 10 years, five years, three years out. Look at what you can assess for yourself, pros and cons with the information that you have to hand now and with what you're trying to achieve 
in the near term. So for me, it was, you know, what do I want to achieve out of being in London for a year? It was, okay, what do I want to achieve to help Monzo in the next, you know, six months as we need succession planning? It was, you know, what do I want to achieve for Tide? What do I want to achieve for Fertifa? All of the other companies we work with. And then I think if you do that to the best of your ability and with the information, all the data, so don't ignore even uh, data that might be contrary or negative, you do that to the best of your ability, then it puts you in a better position to then make that same decision again when new information arises. And then hopefully that's how you get to closer and closer to the longer term outcome as well. Awesome advice. Thank you. And what are you excited about in 2024? What are you most excited about? I mean, everything, right? I'm so excited about everything. I've got qualms about elections in both uh, the US and the UK. But in terms of, you know, our sector, our industry, investing, founders, I mean, I'm an investor, so I'm an optimist, an eternal optimist. I think there are great opportunities to back fantastic people, to try and get more attention on things that are undervalued or don't get enough attention, to invest in areas that have been historically underinvested in, but also to see some real great companies and founders just really punching through this year. I think there'll be so much in so many different sectors. I share your optimism. It's a great thing to hear. And finally, this is 40 Minute Mentor. If you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? She's very much alive, but it would be Dame Stephanie Shirley. So I don't know if people will know her. I know um, she's getting on a bit and her history is not quite as recent anymore, but I think she's an absolute legend. And I would love just to, and I don't even know if it's classic mentorship. I just love to hear more and more stories, what she has overcome, what she's achieved. Maybe the one-liner that a lot of people say, but this really trivializes everything that she's come through. But, you know, she had adopted the name to use Steve in correspondence instead of Stephanie because she found that people responded to her letters and her correspondence more with a male name. And so everything that she's achieved by building up her IT business when she did, what she overcame in her childhood, and all of her advocacy, she's such an inspiration. So I would just love to spend more time with her. She is a real aspirational guest for me. And uh, you're not the first person to name check her a real inspiration. And that's a very inspirational place to end it. Eileen, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, and your mentorship with us all. It's a real privilege. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that is all from us today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you're a new listener and haven't left us feedback before, we would really appreciate it if you did. We'd love to hear what you love most about 40 Minute Mentor and how you think we can make it even better. So if you have 30 seconds after this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could head to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a rating and review. You can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if we've left any questions unanswered in today's episode, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, then please do let our head of marketing, Hannah, know. Thank you so much again for all your support. And I hope to see you next Wednesday for even more pocket-sized mentorship. Thank you.